It's Monday, October 1st, and this is The Daily Dive. The Kavanaugh confirmation circus continues, for one more week at least. In a stunning turnaround on Friday, Senator Jeff Flake announced that he would vote for Judge Kavanaugh, but wanted an FBI investigation into the credible allegations against him. So that is where we are now. The FBI is going to issue a report on its findings, but make no determination about the allegations. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters, joins us to make sense of the ongoing Supreme Court drama. Next, a new report has said that the gig economy may not be the workforce of the future, but that isn't stopping rideshare companies from trying to attract new drivers. Lyft has said that you can get a guaranteed $2,500 a month, even though drivers earn about half as much as they did five years ago. Jefferson Graham, host of the Talking Tech podcast, joins us to talk about how much you can make and why you always have to pay attention to the fine print. Finally, we have all been there. You're in a funk and you can't get out of it. How about using fear to lift you out? Pushing yourself to complete scary but exhilarating activities can give you a lasting sense of strength and accomplishment and might just be the cure you need. Elizabeth Bernstein, columnist for The Wall Street Journal, joins us to talk about using fear to break out of a funk. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. You're always going to find somebody to try to impugn the integrity of either Kavanaugh or Ford. That is not what this is about. This is about whether or not this man and his impeccable judicial temperament and qualifications in 12 years on the second highest court in this country is qualified to be on the United States Supreme Court. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. We are continuing this ongoing conversation of the circus that is Brett Kavanaugh's nomination to the Supreme Court. Let's just pick it right up on Friday. Jeff Flake threw everybody for a loop and said he is going to vote for Judge Kavanaugh to advance to the full Senate, but he wanted an FBI investigation. He said that the country is being torn apart and he wants everybody to have faith in the process. He was pushing for this investigation. The White House came through and approved it. What do we know about what happened to Jeff Flake? He went through, uh, it looked like hell. He he looked physically tired, like he hadn't slept all night, like it was really weighing on him on Friday. We understand that Flake was really torn about what to do with the Kavanaugh appointment going forward and that when Chris Coons began to speak in the Judiciary Committee on Friday, that hearing his words sort of acted to persuade Jeff Flake to change his mind, that he was sort of moved or inspired by his fellow senator, that Coons had really structured his, his remarks with the intent of trying to persuade Jeff Flake and that it worked. For that reason, he decided decided or he was convinced to press upon his leadership that they would have his vote, a very crucial vote, to confirm Brett Kavanaugh, but it would only come if they waited a week and conducted an FBI investigation. It looked like he had been put through the ringer. There was, uh, you know, the viral video now of these two women that confronted Jeff Flake at the elevator and he was just looking down, didn't want to make eye contact. They, they yelled at him, look at me while I'm talking to you. You could really just see it all weighing on him, culminating with him asking for an FBI investigation. So let's move on to that. The White House has approved an FBI investigation. People are talking about what the scope of the investigation is. They're obviously looking into Dr. Christine Blasey Ford's allegations. They're looking into Deborah Ramirez's allegations. But rumors are saying that they're not looking into the Swetnick allegations. That's right. We've heard that they're going to look 
look at just the first two allegations that were brought against Brett Kavanaugh and not the third allegation, that that third allegation was one in which dealt with more people. It was a different date. It seemed to not be directed directly at Brett Kavanaugh, that he was present when some attacks happened, but had not been a party to those attacks. And for that reason, they had opted to stick with just the first two. Additionally, we heard from senators on the Judiciary Committee in agreeing to move forward with this FBI investigation that they believed that just looking at those, even just the first one would be sufficient, given the fact that Dr. Christine Blasey Ford had come forward and told her own story. People are still making it uh, make it a thing of how limited it is. Reports have been saying that the White House put limits on who they could talk to. So there was other classmates of Brett Kavanaugh that came forward that said he was actually a really heavy drinker. And uh, people are also saying that FBI agents aren't allowed to go back to that safe way and confirm when Mark Judge was actually working there. They're also not going to make any determinations. They're just going to put all the information they gather into a report for senators to look at. This is adding to what supporters of Kavanaugh tell me is evidence that this will move very quickly, that it will be wrapped up, and that will have a little effect on the actual outcome of their decision to vote for him. And that's because, as you said, they're not going to issue some type of recommendation. They're just going to go separately, compile a list of facts, many of which we think we already have and we've already seen. And without the likelihood that they would uncover new facts by talking to new people or going out and talking to, say, the safe way, as you pointed out, that with no new facts, we we know these people, many of them were willing to vote for Brett Kavanaugh before. It'll be unlikely that they would change their vote in the intervening week. How has the president reacted to all of this news? Uh, A lot of people are saying Mitch McConnell got through to him. He didn't go off on on everybody and he stayed very subdued in public comments. He has come a long way since the moments where he was staying very subdued and quiet in his public comments. He's gotten much more critical of Dr. Ford and of Democrats around this. He even tweeted Sunday morning an angry tweet about the Saturday Night Live segment in which Matt Damon depicted Brett Kavanaugh. And we saw sort of a mocking of a number of the senators who were on that panel called it not funny, said that it was an advertisement for Democrats. He has tried to sort of walk a fine line. And when the investigation was called for on Friday, he was saying that whatever it took to get the senators on board, it has been an up and down from the president on how he's handled this. The Sunday morning news talk show everybody gets out there. Lindsey Graham still saying Kavanaugh's not a stumbling, bumbling drunk and you're not a rapist in high school. And Sarah Huckabee Sanders says she's not micromanaging. Uh, the White House is not micromanaging the investigation. And then Kellyanne Conway went up still supporting Judge Kavanaugh. She said that she was also a victim of uh, sexual assault. So it's all over the place and everybody's just very emotional and torn about this all across the country. That's right. I mean, this has proven to be one of the most emotional episodes of President Trump's tenure in office since we really saw women get upset about the Access Hollywood video while he was running for office. This has sort of been the next chapter of women coming forward and saying they were victims or that their own experiences were shading how they felt about this. I don't think that's over. We're going to see another week of this debate. There's going to likely be a vote at the end of this week on his confirmation. And that's going to continue this real emotional conversation that we're having as a nation. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Hi, my name is Monica and I'm a Lyft driver. 
I love Express Pay because I'm able to cash out instantly any day of the week. And even if I need to put gas or get groceries that day, then I can deposit it right away. Joining us now is Jefferson Graham, tech reporter for USA Today and host of the Talking Tech podcast. Let's talk about what's going on with uh, Lyft and Uber. There was a new study that came out by JP Morgan Chase talking about how the gig economy may not be the workforce of the future. And in particular, they focus a lot on the ride sharing part of it. And basically earnings for drivers have dropped almost in half since the past few years. Lyft and Uber are going through the process of telling everybody, hey, there's still a, a big chance to earn a lot of money. They're saying you can get a guaranteed $2,500 a month if you drive for Lyft. What are they talking about? What are they saying? Well, first of all, that's the first month. Yeah, there's a uh, lot of fine print with this. Yeah, there's a lot of fine print. So it's the first month, and you have to accept 90% of the rides. Now, I've never been a driver, so I don't know what it's like, but apparently it's not easy. Apparently, you can't accept every ride. So they're basically saying you have to accept every ride that comes into the phone, and you also have to put in a lot of hours. I think you have to do... 60 rides on the first day, and it's somehow you're going to miraculously get to this 2,500 number. That's for Lyft. For Uber, it was 2,100. Yeah, there's a lot of conditions that have to be met. They're saying that closely mimics what it would be about 30 grand a year for um, usually what a part-time job is for many, which is what this is, the Uber and Lyft driving. A lot of people use it as a supplemental income more than their actual full job. The minute I wrote that article, I started hearing from all these drivers. Basically, they say that you can't make any money driving for these people. It's that you can barely do a minimum wage, that there's all this fine print once you start. I've got a great story for both of us. Why don't we drive Lyft for a week? And then we'll be much more knowledgeable, you know? Right. I'd love to do that sometime. So I think it's very tough. And I think, I mean, I was really surprised. I was just doing the Google search and up came these numbers. I'd never seen anything like it where, you know, Lyft makes $2,500 a month. And then it started DoorDash. will pay you seventeen fifty a month. Though that looks a lot harder. That's where you deliver food. I don't right. know how you're going to, you know, when everybody eats at lunchtime, right? You're going to eat between 11 and 2 tops. How many deliveries can you make? Back to this J.P. Morgan Chase study that they did. They said that 58% of these drivers really just work three months or less each year. People that are drivers, by and large, are not using this as their full income. Yeah, let me read you what Lyft wrote to me. They wrote a statement about the study. The fact that this study did not examine hourly earnings, the metric that drivers most care about, has resulted in misleading headlines. Had it done so, the results would have shown stable driver earnings in recent years. Many more drivers are choosing to earn with Lyft on a part-time basis, often fewer than 10 hours per week, and they tell us they truly valuable value the flexibility that Lyft provides. Now, I, I was in a car last week early in the morning, and I talked to the driver, and I think she picked me up at 5 or 5.30, and she was going home at 7 to bring the kids to school. But I think a lot of people just go out and do things really early and work for a few hours. And they do appreciate that flexibility. In that study, they did say that driving specifically makes up 56% of all this uh, gig work, the gig economy. So it's still the biggest sector for this kind of stuff. The other thing is, you know, I talked to a driver last week who spends a lot of time, speaking of Los Angeles, driving to USC and UCLA where all drives are free. All rides are free for students within three miles and they have to pick them up and they don't get paid extra money. They don't get any of the fares. They get a bonus if they reach a certain level 
of driving these people around if they do like 90 rides or whatever like that. So that sounds like that's a little tough to make money on. Yeah, it's the incentives and the different types of incentives that they give you are all over the place. You know, Lyft is also doing this program right now where they call it uh, Ditch Your Car. They did a challenge in Chicago to 100 residents. They're expanding it to 35 new cities now. But basically, you know, ditch your car, only use Lyft and other rideshare type of things. And then they'll give you like a $550 credit after you've gone through this month long process or something. Really what their goal is with these things is to illustrate that you don't necessarily need to own a car anymore. You can rely on these things, use our services and you don't really need a car. And they had some success. There was people that you know said, I'm going to sell my car because I realized it's cheaper for me to do this. So as this notion that drivers are making less money, Lyft is still making that big push saying you don't need a car. Rely on us for this. Touting all the money and that you could make in the first month of driving is a smart move because people are enticed by that. But you got to look into all the fine print. There's a lot of benchmarks you need to hit to reach that money. Jefferson Graham, tech reporter for USA Today and host of the Talking Tech podcast. Thank you very much for joining us. All right. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. They were terrified. They were screaming and crying, and you could observe how frightened they were. But when they came out, they said, "No, we are. We that was really cool. We're we're happy. Nah, it wasn't so scary." And their brain waves had calmed down. And so, what's happening there? They're having a physiological response to that that's somehow calming down. Joining us now is Elizabeth Bernstein, columnist for the Wall Street Journal. So, I feel a lot of people can get into these modes where you kind of get into these negative funks. Maybe things aren't going your way. You're getting down on yourself. You know, it's tough to climb out of these things a lot of times. You know, sometimes we'll call our friends or have a friend night, things like that. Everybody's different. But you wrote an article about using fear to help break out of your funk. And you did something that you were particularly very nervous about. And we'll get to that in a minute. But Tell us what this is all about, using fear to break out of your funk. We all get into these places that are hard emotionally. Well, they're difficult emotionally, and then they're difficult to move out of. You, know, you feel a little stuck. You know, maybe you want to leave a job or a relationship or something's just not going your way. We all, unfortunately, tell ourselves negative things sometimes, and we can get into a rut. You know, sometimes you can get out of them quickly. Sometimes you can't. And so a depression, a breakup, sometimes that bad place you're in emotionally is extended. And so I want wanted to look at different ways we can get out of it. And what's really interesting is fear. There's a whole science, like people study fear, sociologists, scientists study fear. And they know that certainly it can be frightening and awful experience, but it has an upside and it can help move us through these bad places if we choose to sort of frighten ourselves and be brave in a situation. And that's what I wanted to look at. Yeah, there's new research showing that fear or conquering our fear or just kind of confronting it can actually boost your mood. You even wrote about in your article something that's going to come out next month in the journal Emotion, where they looked at the brainwave activity of a bunch of people before and after they went through one of these extreme haunted houses, the kind where actors can grab you and shock you with electricity and stuff you in a coffin. I mean, that sounds pretty terrifying as it is right there. Uh, but, what ha- but what happened to these people after? It's so interesting. So there are this, there is this thing out there called an extreme haunted house, and it sounds terrifying. But people go through it. They choose to go through it, right? So they're choosing to scare themselves. Sociologists 
from University of Pittsburgh went to one of these houses and measured the brainwaves of people before they went through this experience. It was about a 45-minute experience. And then afterwards, and what they found out is that all of their brain activity sort of calmed down afterwards. They showed this like global reduction in brain activity, meaning they're not ruminating as much. They're not like going over and over something. But what's really interesting is they said they hadn't been that scared when the researchers also watched them go through these this experience, and it is a terrifying experience. And so they watched them, and they were terrified. They were screaming and crying, and you could observe how frightened they were. But when they came out, they said, "No, we are. We that was really cool. We're we're happy. Nah, it wasn't so scary." And their brain waves had calmed down. And so what's happening there? They're having a physiological response to that that's somehow calming down themselves. And I and the researchers sort of know what's happening when our fear is to get us out of a bad situation. So originally, if a mastodon's coming at us, we get scared. It's our signal. Get the hell out, right? That fear gives us a lot of physiological responses. Our heart rate's going up. Our blood is actually starting to centralize around the organs that might need it, our heart and our lungs and our muscles, so we can get out of there if we need to. It's leaving our brain a little bit, so we're going to calm down. It's the rush that gets you through it, and then, yeah, you calm down because you've gotten out of it, and it can improve your mood. You're happier because of it, and especially in cases of these haunted houses. I love these. They're a blast. You're scared for the moment, but after, it's a fun memory. It's great to kind of go with your friends and, and, and talk about it after and say, hey, remember we got scared and we're, we're out of it now. You know, it's and a great little relationship thing. part of it is key. They also found, I didn't write about this, but they also did find that doing it with somebody heightens these effects, that it's going to keep the memory going, that it makes it an even better experience for you. And then one other thing I wanted to say, you're getting all the endorphins, like you're getting adrenaline, you're going to get all the neurotransmitters, dopamine, norepinephrine, these things that are feel-good chemicals, or you're just being flooded with them too when you're fearful. What you did was to confront your fear. You went scuba diving in Iceland in like the coldest waters that there are. What happened for you? <laughs> freezing. So I am a big diver. I love to dive and it is not usually something that frightens me. But I was in an extended funk this summer and I decided like I needed this jolt out of it. There's this bucket list dive. You can dive between the tectonic plates of Eurasia and North America. Beautiful, freezing glacial water, but stunning dive. So I'm going to do this. I live in Miami. All of my diving has been warm weather. So I have to get certified to dive in a dry suit, which is a different kind of suit to dive in this freezing water. The day before I'm going to do my bucket list dive, I am signed up to do a dry suit course. We go to this lake and suddenly, I'm not kidding, there's a gale. It is like 40 mile per hour winds. I checked it again this week to make sure I wasn't making that up. 40 mile per hour gusts, huge waves, and I am so far out of my comfort zone, I'm almost panicking. And so that was the start of it. I had to work myself through this unexpected fear. I didn't expect the conditions in this lake and uh, decide whether or not I was getting in the lake. So I really shaking the whole way got in the water. And I have to say, the minute I followed him into that water, 35 degrees in Iceland, I was euphoric. And I got the payoff that I originally thought. I just didn't expect it to be as hard as it was going to (laughs) be. I got myself out of a ruck because now you can look back and say, hey, if I could do that, I walked into that lake. I was terrified. You know what? I can do anything if I can do what scared me the most. People say you should consider a challenge that takes place in nature. There's a lot of research that shows that nature 
nature is really healthy for us. There's this sense of awe, something that's bigger than us, the ocean, a sunset, a forest, and that helps our brainwaves as well. It zends us out. And to get a sense of accomplishment, it should be something that requires skill, not just luck. That way you can kind of get those incremental achievements. Each step, okay, got out of the van, that's an accomplishment. I walked to the lake, that's an accomplishment. So you can back out each time, but by the time it gets really hard while you're swimming in that lake, you already did a whole bunch before, and you feel some sense of momentum. Elizabeth Bernstein, columnist for The Wall Street Journal, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. All right, that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive. 